Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hi everyone, welcome along to this episode. This is Stephen Moe speaking. Today we're going to be talking with Nigel Cottle, who's one of the co-founders and directors of Crave Cafe in Auckland. We have a fascinating conversation about the highs and lows of running a social enterprise cafe, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Nigel. We doubled in size and then just stayed more than double the whole time. You know? And so we were just scrambling to catch up. And, and essentially what happened was every new person that came in just cost us money. You know, it would have literally been cheaper for us to hand them money at the door and send them away. <laughs> um, but that's not what we, you know. And, and so because we had to hire so, you know, one, one brand new staff person coming to the context could maybe look after four tables, whereas now one staff person could do 15. You know? And uh, so we had to have four staff to do the job of one, and that's an incredibly inefficient thing. In coming weeks, we're going to be speaking with a real variety of people. And next week is Chris Simcock, who's an impact investor right here in New Zealand. We'll also be talking with Michael Mayle, who founded Cookie Time and is involved in a number of different entrepreneurial ventures these days, as well as Samantha Jones, who founded Little Yellowbird, which is a social enterprise. The best way to ensure you don't miss out on those upcoming episodes is to hit subscribe in the podcast app that you're using to listen to this. And don't forget that it's quite easy to share episodes that you think other people might enjoy. There's usually a little icon that has a box with an arrow pointing out of it. And so cooking on that is an easy way to share the content. The last thing I'll say is that I've just started a Twitter account for the podcast. So if you search at Seeds Podcast, you should be able to find it. Now let's get into the interview with Nigel. So it's a pleasure to welcome Nigel Cottle from the Crave Collective in Auckland. Thank you for joining me today. It's good to be here. Um, It's great to have you. And today uh, we're going to talk about what you're doing up there in Auckland and um, really interested in some of the different ventures that you're involved in and some of your plans for the future as well. Yeah. But in order to do that, I think it's sometimes helpful to go back to the beginning of a person's life and understand a bit more about their background. So what we'll do is, is... rewind right to the start of your life and yeah, right. just tell us a bit of your background and where you're from all right okay i um i was born in napier uh, but but moved from there when i was pretty young and um and then i spent actually four years in the solomon islands when i was um in my kind of eight to 12 years of age my, my dad was a missionary over there and um and that they were pretty formative uh years of seeing life a little bit differently to i think how a lot of new zealanders um and see life I came back, we lived in West Auckland uh, throughout my whole teenage years, and I was pretty committed to the idea of um, making a lot of money and being generous with that money uh, in, in that sense. So I did a business degree, um, specialised in marketing, and then as soon as I finished that, essentially went into youth work, uh, which was not my plan, but was just really the, 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 the call uh, that, I, that I had in that, at that time. And so I then spent 10 years working um, in two different Baptist churches, and before kind of um, heading into Morningside, where, where I am now. Yeah, and just backing up right to that um, that Solomon Islands experience. Yeah. Well, I've never been there. What's it like? Uh, it, is, it is epic. It, it is really, there's a whole lot of Pacific Islands that have been developed, and there's tourism, and, yeah, and, and they're, they're beautiful places. But the Solomons is a place that no one's been to. There's, right. there's essentially no tourism. You have to be a hardcore diver or, or, or someone in terms of some businessy thing to, to go there. And so it's a super undeveloped paradise. Um, 
that that was just a, a great place to be. Since I left, actually, there's been quite a little bit of social unrest, and um, and and it's quite a different place now. I understand than than what we were there, but it's probably been about twenty years since I've been back. Right. Yeah. And when you were living there, um, what sort of environment was it? So we we lived in a house that looked a bit like a normal house, had a tin roof and and yeah. sort of you know fabricated walls, um, but we would often travel into villages and, and most, most of the housing in the Solomons is for thatch housing um, and very susceptible to you know, cyclones and, and, and weather. Um, so were you in a main city and then yeah, travelling around or yeah. was it? We yeah. were in the main city of, of Honiara uh-huh. um, on the main island of Guadalcanal and yes, I, I went to an international school there so that there were, uh, you know, in the whole of the Solomons there might have been a thousand people of, of white skin um, yeah, and, and yeah, uh, so so most of my life was spent just hanging out with just all sorts of people. Yeah. And what do you think that did for you as a young, you were age eight, you said. Mm. Um, did that, you know, in terms of your perception of the world, it must have been quite a big influence. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Because I'd spent five years in Mangere before then where I was like the only white kid in my, cl- in my sort of kindy. Um, and so my, my all my formative years were spent uh, in, in a context where it wasn't a Pākehā kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so heading to the Solomons, um, and, and they, were, they were awesome years where you're old enough, I was old enough to have some independence, I could go exploring, and there's right. lots of places to explore, but young enough that school's not deeply critical, so you, you could, yeah, yeah, it was just like an awesome time of life to be in that context. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And the culture or the, the values that you saw there, how is it different to the Western values? Yeah, like significant different values, and some that, that today I'd, I'd really admire, and some today that I'd I'd push back on. You know, so um, yeah, for example, the role of women, um, I'd, I'd push back on some of those roles. Um, their the value of hospitality, I'd embrace wholeheartedly. So, so there's a number of things that, you know, on reflection, I really um, loved about what the place was and what it helped us and our, our, our wider family. I think learn about living. Yeah. And when you talk about embracing the hospitality side, like what what was the practical evidence of that that you saw? Are you talking about um, families and and how they worked t- together? Or? Yeah, it's sort of like when anyone visits, you always welcome them with open arms. Uh, when any, so in the Solomons, they have a one talk system. So anyone who speaks the same language, so so one talk or, or talk in the same language, um, anyone who speaks the same dialect, they when they come to your house or they come to your village. You, know, you welcome them and you give them food and hospitality and right. and, and just make it a good time. Yeah, and, uh, and and there's no questions about that. There's no, oh, am I busy? It's just that's what you do. And so there's a deep value of, of welcoming, of engaging and, and connecting. And, mm-hmm. and food's a really big part of that. Right. And how did you find it coming back as a 12-year-old? That's also quite a formative time of, yeah. of life, you know, having been in this different place, different culture. Um, was there a bit of that, the term I think is reverse culture shock, you know, like it, did that something you faced or? Yeah, yeah, it was, but probably not in a way that when I was I was 12, I could really articulate very well. Um, I think when I came back, I'd spent four years running around in the sun and so I was, I was pretty, I was pretty tanned and so I was introduced as a Solomon Islander um, and, and so I, I was the, I was the unusual kid at school in, in my form two year, um, not, not unusual in a bad way, but like I was the kind of exotic person, and right. so it kind of um, it, it was a it was a good time being back in the sense of I made friends quickly and uh, and, and enjoyed the difference of what what New Zealand was. You know? yeah. yeah. 
but when you got there, uh, when you got back, you were introduced as the Solomon Islander, were you? Yeah. All yeah. right. Yeah. yeah and, and people were like, oh, yeah, can you speak? Yeah. And, and they asked, yeah, it was, I was a novelty in that regard. Um, yeah. And, and it was, it was unusual. I, I wasn't very, I was a small kid. I used to sort of talk my way in and then out of fights. Sort of, sort of how, would, how would happen. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, that's good skills. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's actually similar to me because we moved to Christchurch uh, when I was in Form 2. Right. And you can hear my accent. I actually grew up in New Zealand, but um, have always had my accent. And, right. and when I arrived, um, it was quite a novelty, I think, for kids in the class to be like, oh, this person yeah. talks differently, you know. And um, yes, yeah, so there was a bit of that sort of, yeah. Um, which I think, yeah, I wonder how it's shaped me. Um, I can imagine. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, I was interested in what you said, you know, going and studying business and you wanted to make a lot of money so that you yeah. could then give money away, yeah. um, which I think is actually, you know, that's quite a noble idea um, in terms of becoming a philanthropist or make mm. the money to give the money away. But what you're doing now is quite different to that. Um, what was the sort of the shift that happened where you went to study business and things. Um, yeah, when did you realize that that wasn't for you, that you didn't want to embrace that? Yeah. Because uh, well, my dad had been a pastor or, and a missionary, that kind of thing, and so I'd, I'd seen that, and I'd, I'd seen him do good things in the world, you know, and, and make the world a better place. And But, he, you know, there's, there's not much money in that. And my, my sense is that there's people that do the work and people that fund the work. And so I'd been, I'm going to be a person that funds the work. But, I and I'll be, I'll be generous in that, but I'll... I'll also have wealth, yeah, um, and that was my plan. And so, pretty much as soon as I finished my degree, um, this opportunity came up, you know, to become the youth pastor at, at our church, and uh, it, it was something that I felt this is what I need to do, you know? yeah. And it, and I didn't necessarily feel equipped for it, or you know, um, I had the skills, but I, but it was like this is what I need to do, and so I just sort of launched into that, and it, it was a a wholesale change from it was almost 180 degrees from what I thought I was going to be doing yeah in that regard yeah and and it's been epic yeah oh that's great so it kind of flowed into what you're doing now yeah yeah I think yeah. so so I mean I think a lot of I've got a great a big community heart and I think a lot of that flowed out of you know lots of years of youth work mm. yeah yeah because I guess you're helping um people in formative times when they're working through their identity mm. and what they want to do with their lives and things, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And the area that you were working in, um, Morningside, can you yep. just tell us a little bit about that? Because some people are listening totally. uh, won't be from Auckland and yeah. also, um, well, actually, I don't know much about it. And also people listening overseas, they might be in the UK or the States or whatever. So yeah. um, just describe a little bit about it because I think that becomes important for then what we're about to talk about. Yeah, well, I mean, even most people in Auckland don't know anything about Morningside. It, it's it's been one of those non-suburbs. There was a, a cartoon um, produced uh, yeah, a number of years ago called Brotown, and it was based on Morningside, but it seemed almost like a mythical land because no one actually knew where it was. So there's a there's a Morningside train station, and it's about half a kilometre away from Eden Park, where the, the, the big national rugby and cricket stadium is. And... Um, it's sort of sandwiched between six other suburbs of Kingsland, Western Springs, Balmoral, Mount Alberts, Sandringham, uh, Mount Eden. And in, in that regard, it, um, people in Auckland and in most cities get to choose the suburb they live in. Uh, and so, and there's desirable suburbs and least desirable suburbs. And Morningside didn't really have a, a centre. It had a train station, which you wouldn't really regard as a, as a centre of town. Um, and, and that was about it. So... For us, when we moved in there, it, 
that there was a sort of thing of we moved in and our house had been marketed as Kingsland, but we were 100 metres from the train station. There's, there's no way that we were Kingsland. And then houses 100 metres away there are Western Springs and houses 100 metres that way are Mount Albert and houses. And so people opted into these other suburbs because Morningside wasn't a suburb that you wanted to be part of. Um, so essentially, so it was 10 years ago we moved in and we've been on this sort of this journey like a social experiment of how to how to create a neighborhood that people opt into mm-hmm. so they don't move houses but they move neighborhoods by by changing the end part of their address hmm. so it's uh, they're making a conscious choice to yeah. to identify with this place yeah and, and so yeah i mean we're, we're fast forwarding a little bit in this convo but there's a sense of we're having conversations now with people who they go you know i live in school road in morningside but they would have articulated a year ago they lived in school road in kingsland or you know and so those, those are all those um joyous conversations that we're having kind of after 10 years of sort of doing some hard yards yeah so take us back 10 years and what was going on in terms of because we're about to talk about what you're doing now, yeah. but it's really interesting to trace back and think about how it started in terms of, um, yeah, what what was the origins of some of the things that you're involved with with Crave Collective? Yeah, so there's a there's a, a a couple of us sort of moved into the neighbourhood, and I, I I was sort of convinced that the next season of life for me was one of local engagement. So so engaging in my actual geographical neighborhood and trying to make that a better place to live so we moved into this context that we and it's funny like when we moved in we thought we were moving into Kingsland because that's what our house had been marketed and it just took us a little bit to realize no this is not Kingsland this is Morningside and to own that and then to to go okay well this is what we're going to do we're going to we're going to engage Morningside and we're going to look to how to make it a better place to live um we we had we had kids and we want to make it a better place for our families um and and we we sort of picked a suburb ultimately that wasn't awesome you know that that was part of it you know and how how do we help um a suburb that maybe could do with a bit of you know zhuzhing um to, to, to get better yeah that's great. And so what were some of the first things that you got involved with, with that sort of long-term vision of what you wanted it to be? Well, actually, yeah. did, you, did you have a long-term vision of what you wanted it to be? Like, do you have some concept at, the, at those outsets of no. here's what we're aiming for? Or yeah, you no, just... it, was, it was not that at all. We, <laughs> because we didn't want to come in and pose a thing, not that we could move in charge of anything. Um, so the first, the first steps, first year, you know, year and a half, were just, just trying to meet people. We, we just joined everything we could. Um, so local groups that were already there that yeah, and, and like the, the local pub had a quiz night on a Tuesday and a desperate housewives night on a Wednesday and mm-hmm. it's just other things and so we just go and salsa I mean you know I joined the salsa dancing thing I, I, <laughs> I never want to do that but just to try and engage and connect into the neighborhood we just sort of right. joined in with what was going on got tried to get to know people and it was it's a very it was a very hard neighborhood at the start like super hard actually so I'd come from a previous context where I'd moved to Kumu and on the first week that I was there I was introdu- I was at the front of the, the church and I was introduced to a whole bunch of people and they were like sweet this is Nigel and so then when I walked in the main streets of Kumu I knew a whole lot of people already and they'd introduced me to their friends and I, and I could easily become a part of that community mm-hmm. we moved to Morningside and we're we're just nobodies we're just no one at all uh and it was it was a journey to get people to raise their eyebrows at us you know uh, and and to just to because it wasn't a friendly place it wasn't a, a dangerous place it just people kept in themselves and they, they didn't say hello and so there was a it was a hard road to kind of push into that you know like for, we, we're, we're hospitable people and we thought yeah we'd like to invite people over for dinner and it 
it took us a while to realize well, you can't invite strangers into your house for dinner that's a real weird thing to do so <laughs> for example we set up a, a cooking class around the idea that people wouldn't come strangers won't come for dinner but they'll come to a cooking class if it's in your house and you're then it's sort of like they're coming for dinner anyway. Yeah, and so we, we just tried a few different things like that. Um, mm. Trying to build that micro community, it sounds yeah. like, like the little connections that yeah. mean that you recognize somebody when you're walking into the grocery store and you say, hey, yeah, how absolutely. you doing? Yeah. And, and, and the neighborhood has um, it, it's got a little history of bad development. You know, builders um, or, or developers sort of trying to make a quick buck and sort of building some apartments or things that have very poor social space but just make a quick you know, dollar for them and then an, another kind of sub history of um, a lot of kind of mental health halfway houses that are all kind of now defunded but um, the, the buildings and the, and the things there and so it, it creates like a real good now quite diverse neighborhood right okay and so some of the first initiatives that you did was it did it start with a cafe or what was the first things you were doing the, the, the cafe came along probably a year or year and a half in, into it actually and it, it was We'd, we were sort of asking the question, you know, what does the neighbourhood need? And mm. our the sense of it, it, it's transient, so that it's a, a short people are there for a bit, and then they go. It's a, it's amazing how many how many people have spent a season in Morningside Kings and all, you know, that kind of area. And um, so so for us, what we realised that there's lots of creativity, um, lots of good people, but just not a lot that connected them together. And and there were, you know, if you moved in, no one was ever gonna knock on your door, give you a plate of muffins, and say, "Hey, welcome to Morningside," you know, and, right. and explain what was going on. Um, and so, what we realised is that the way that you feel like you're a local is ultimately when the businesses know who you are. So, if you go to the fish and chip shop or the dairy or you know the Indian place enough times that they recognise you, then you feel like you're a local because it's the shop owners that kind of create that thing mm. so we thought well, well you know we could do that and so how about we we step a little cafe it was in the back street it was a terrible terrible location for a cafe um but for us it wasn't about getting people from all around the place it was just for the neighborhood and it was a little a little 20 seat thing um and and it was like we can fast track that process we can get to know people's names get to know their orders make them feel like a local and then connect people to people so it wasn't about us connecting with them so much because you can only know so many people mm. but it was about trying to get people connected with people and uh, and so we sort of set up with the idea that we'll just put all the profits back into the neighborhood but and particularly into ways that get people connected with each other yeah no, it makes sense and and coffee and drinks and sitting down and sharing conversations like yeah. it's promoting that isn't it yeah um i lived in sydney for a couple of years before this and had a guy i was a co-worker with he used to come in um in the mornings with a cup of coffee and the, it, and he told me this story that uh he kept going back to the same coffee shop that you know the place because the attendant never recognized him and right. it sounds strange but she would recognize all the other people and like John, you know, Jane and, and have know them. And he was so frustrated. He said, I've just got to keep going back. Yeah. And one day she'll remember me and write my name on the cup and, and it will be my usual, you know, like, sweet. Yeah, yeah. I made it in. Like I'm in the club. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. And so, and you can do that for a business sense, but you know, and we were doing that for a, a neighborhood sense. You know, yeah. In, in that regard. Yeah. And you know, cafes, um, are not necessarily the most profitable thing. No. Did you know no. much about the business of running a cafe? Um, because I think it's kind of a, 
it's an easy thing to say, oh, I know, let's set up a cafe. Yeah. But actually, there's a lot more to it, isn't there? Yeah. Than, you know, we were talking before we started recording how many eggs you need yeah. in a week. And it's a ridiculous number, right? Yeah. What was it? It's like, like 180 dozen. 180 dozen, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of logistics involved yeah. as well. Um, did you have people that had been involved in the hospitality industry or, or what did you personally known about it before? Yeah, well, uh, I had, so in my youth work um, days, I had uh, run some coffee event fundraisers so like the parachute music festival and some other things like that we would we would run um, big kind of cafe things in there and that right. they weren't a day-to-day cafe they were events and, and, and event things are quite different to day-to-day that there's a um in events it's all about how much you can produce in a, in a short period of time mm. um and in a, in a day-to-day cafe it's it's growing something slowly and building yeah um but there was a there's a lot of coffee knowledge and, and things like that that I developed over a, a period of about sort of 12 or, 12 or 13 years mm-hmm. um, so I knew a bit but there was uh, there was much more that I didn't know mm-hmm. yeah than, than what I did know and but there was a sort of sense of like we'll work this out and it, it, it'll be okay mm-hmm. and and did you have people you know you're building a team that was working on this or you know you had different skills coming in yeah, how so did that work so there's this collective of us in the, in the neighborhood and we, we called ourselves the Crave Collective um, in and around the idea of uh, trying to have accessible language that people could kind of g- grab hold of. And it's like, yeah, we, we're just people, we live in the neighborhood and we're trying to make the neighborhood we live in a better place to live. And, and people can kind of understand that, you know, because there is, there's altruism in that, but there's also a little bit of selfishness because it is your neighborhood and you do want it to be better. So mm. um, it, it kind of, fit a lot of bills yeah well let's come uh, let's come back to the cafe in a minute because right. i want to explore that collective word yep. so there's it's more than a cafe there's other people who are yeah. in the collective is that right yeah so i run the cafe and, yeah. and I'm, I'm employed to do that it's uh um but and so, so the cafe works that everyone who works in it is employed we we made a decision really early on not to subscribe to a volunteerism um, philosophy yeah. because I'd been part of a whole lot of volunteer things and we knew we wanted this to be sustainable so it had to yeah, more than a couple of years so we had to get through those volunteer fatigue type things and um, yeah. so, so we made a decision there so I'm employed by the cafe and I, I run it but there's 16 of us 17 of us in the collective and only four of the collective actually work in the cafe the, the rest of us are just normal people just teachers and you know people um, mm-hmm. do, do stuff so no one's super wealthy there's not a whole lot of money behind this thing um, it's just normal people in a normal neighborhood uh, trying to make it you know, a better place to live mm, but you've come together and yeah. you've banded together and there's a purpose behind what you're yeah, doing yeah and so in that sense there is a like all of us um, are Christians we all follow Jesus and and there's a sense for us of yeah we, we there's a, a broader call that we should that the context that we're in should get better because we're there um, and, but that's uh, for us, it's it's accessible to everyone, yeah. And and the whole the point of this thing is not to try and um, grow a mega church on the side of that. The point of this is to make our neighbourhood that we live in better. And mm. it's it's real simple, and and everyone can jump on board with that. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like you're really focused on that um, community. Yeah, and developing the community and identity there. Yeah, absolutely. So, what are some of the other things that the members of the collective are involved in? Just a couple examples. Uh, so, so the. Uh, so the cafe runs and then there's a, a bunch of things that sort of happen on the side of the cafe like say we'll do a street party um, we, we book in summer with a street party in the early December and then uh, kind of mid-March so March the 18th uh, this year is our so on a Sunday evening we get with a street party so we, we've got permission from the council to block off the whole street and we 
we'll, feed, we'll invite the neighbourhood in, there'll be you know, seven, 800 neighbours will come on, we'll feed them all, we'll have a fun time, do, do cool stuff. And, and the goal for us is to get neighbours in an unusual context out on the street, just talking and chatting and feeling like there, there's a vibe here. You know, this is something I'm enjoying being a part of this neighbourhood and, and what it is. And so the cafe doesn't run it. No, no staff are employed to, to run a street party. It's all the collective that sit, sit behind that. So um, th- there's a number of events that sort of happen like that. That's the, the collective's um, role to, this is what we're about, that's what we want to do. In the middle of winter, when you can't do stuff, we, we do sort of soup and settlers on a Sunday night. It's like, we, we'll provide soup, come on, bring your board game and just through the cafe. Um, yeah, there's, we've got a couple of hundred seats in, in the cafe, so it, it's big enough to kind of host quite a bit of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's it's a good time. So we, we try and, and function as a like a, a quasi um, sort of community centre, but not in the way that you'd normally think a community centre is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you mentioned like 16 or 17 sort of core members of the collective. Yeah. Is this something that people come and go as they move in and out of the community or how, do, how yeah, does it yeah. It's not, is, what it, my point is, it's not like it's a legal structure or, you know, a society as such. Yeah, we, we actually just, caught, funny we're in a legal office right here, um, but uh, we, we just sort of, uh, musing through how, like, what the next step of our sort of legal structure is, and I think right. we probably will end going for an incorporated society right. that will own Crave Cafe as, as a as a thing and and a way to um, make sort of shareholding easier and things and, and stuff like that. Sure. So that that's probably the pathway that we that we're tracking down. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because if you've got more than fifteen, that's sort of the yeah. number that you need. Um, yeah. Well, let's have a chat. Is <laughs> yeah. uh, there's always. Um, there's always different options. So, but what did, coming back to the cafe, um, yep. how is that structured or set up? So the, the cafe is, a, 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 it's set up as a limited liability company. Um, and we, uh, so, so we just give all our profit away. So we don't pay any tax because we don't make any money in, in that in that regard. Um, and we, we've mute musing on apply for charitable status but we we don't rely on grants and donations so so there's not so so we don't need that not the same incentive yeah for that stuff yeah. and and it's just us who do it and so it's sort of you know and, and none of us are kind of that legally minded people anyway so so we just sort of do what's what's easiest and at the moment it's just a simple company yeah. um that we give a lot the world profit away yeah and and it's it's been working well, it's, well. the the great thing about your story is that it's been sustainable right because yeah. i can't tell you the number of people that i meet who have a great idea but it's going to be reliant on donations and grants and funding yeah. and that's cool especially at the beginning you know you need some help to get things off the ground but yeah. If long term, if you're constantly dependent on a, a funding stream, yeah. then who knows what the future holds in terms of um, decisions of bodies that you don't control, that yeah. then your whole thing collapses because you were dependent on this or that grant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I've seen that happen in a lot of places, which right. is you know, that why we're trying to make it sort of financially you know, sustainable as well as from a worker perspective, all of those things. You know, yeah. Sustainability from ecological, all those things is really important to us. Yeah. So just describe the reality of the cafe today, like um, how many people are employed there and sort of you mentioned the capacity is quite a big space. Yeah. What sort of things are you doing there? So we're in our third iteration now. Um, just that we... Started with 20 seats. Two years later, we moved to a, uh, we expanded out, punched a hole in the wall, and moved to 65 seats. And then a year and a half ago, uh, moved across the road to a, a much larger space, but literally across the road. And we uh, we have it probably just over 200 seats. Um, and, and so we, we employ 
uh, 49th staff person I employed actually last oh, okay. this week. Um, wow. so, so a reasonable number of, of staff. And so for me, I'm, I'm the manager of that. And my role is I'm not on the floor at, at all. You know, it's, it's a big enough thing to just require me to um, be, be engaging and, and running that. And also my role is cafe manager slash neighborhood connector. So mm-hmm. about half of my time from a cafe perspective is sort of spent connecting with other groups and, and contexts and local body and other things of that in and around the neighbourhood because the point of the cafe is not just to be a cafe but to make the neighbourhood better. Yeah, well, that's a good good ideas. And uh, just in terms of the practical reality or any advice that you'd have for people, <laughs> what are some of the things that you've found is successful versus not successful? You can take that as you want in yeah, terms yeah. of the type of food. You know, like do you bill it as, I don't know, organic type, approach yep. or do you go well this is fair trade or or do you not worry about that type of thing you know like um mm. and and talk through about your sourcing as well like yeah. that sort of thing because i think that's the type of practical detail that's helpful to understand yeah. whether or not people listening have a cafe or not it forces them to think through for their own businesses yep. actually this is how we run maybe we need to revisit it so yeah yeah that's, so maybe if i the biggest thing that would be with that would be quality um, so, so I say sustainability and, and having the business, it is a business and the business has to work as a business. If it doesn't work as a business, it, it won't work. Yeah. And so that's been a really, uh, important thing for us. So it has to be profitable because if it doesn't make a profit, it makes a loss. We just give our profits away. So profits aren't a driver for us in the sense of, yeah, we want to make as much as we can, but they are important to us because right. otherwise we're making a loss. And the collective, we're not wealthy. We can't afford to fund a loss, so it just has to make a profit yeah. in that sense. Um, and what we realized from day one is I've been a part of lots of charitable or, or things that have a great heartbeat behind them, and often things that have a great heartbeat, uh, they the product or the service they provide is is secondary to the heartbeat that they kind of do this thing mm-hmm. so they can achieve the heartbeat, and what what happens is that the the it's not sustain like the product the thing after after people will connect with it for the heartbeat's sake, but after a while they'll be like I'd, I'd probably rather have something that I actually want. Right. So for us, we knew that people would put up with you know, average coffee uh, for a couple of months because they love what we we're about, but eventually they'll just sort of start going to other places a bit and a bit more and a bit more because our coffee wouldn't be high. And if our food, the same thing, um, if, it, if it wasn't of a high quality, people would support it for a little bit, but then they'd drift mm. off. And so we needed to have excellent coffee and excellent food and, and have people um, engage with us at that level r- rather than go, oh, I love what you're about and I'll, I'll put up with the you know, substandard thing you know that, that you yeah. put out because i've just seen that happen so many times yeah. um and so actually it was when at the start we didn't tell anyone we were charitable so the first two years we it was just we were just open as a cafe and and we put this thing out of like we need to be good enough to stand on our own two feet that we don't need this other stuff so we would do all these good things but we, we didn't have any writing on the wall or stuff so it was in a conversation you could have a chat with us and we will we'll tell you better but but you couldn't there was nowhere on a website, you know, you know that, that kind of thing. And that forced us to just be good, you know, um, at, at what we did. And and it was that also fit into our ethos too of like it's, it's relationships and, and connection and things like that. Mm. Um, we, we since got to a size where there were too many people coming in that we couldn't have those conversations and it sort of seemed unfair. Um, but 
to this day now, our estimation as we look through it is about 50% of people that come to Crave have no idea about our social heartbeat. They um, they hear about us as a cafe and, and, and it just kind of goes through. So we there's, and in Auckland, if you're, if you're pretty good as a cafe, you don't have to be top tier, but just pretty good, you become a destination on the weekends. And so we find that we, we have probably six or 700 new people through every weekend that have never been to Crave before. Um, and those numbers, mar- I, I don't know where they come from. Mm. And I don't know, you know, they're just, we don't really do any marketing. They show up. It just sort of happens, <laughs> you know, this word of mouth thing. Yeah. You know? And what I know is that if people love what we're about, but the, but the co- coffee was no good, it, it wouldn't last, you know? Yeah. Um, so the key word I'm picking up is quality. Yeah. That's the, and the experience, you yeah. know, that, that you actually want them to come back because they've had a quality experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I like what you're saying because I think you're right. Many charities would say, well, come and buy our product or whatever it is because you want to support whatever the cause is that we're yeah. doing. But you're, yeah. After, we'll buy your calendar, but it's like these stink photos. Or we'll, yeah. we'll buy the bag, but it's like it falls apart. <laughs> what yeah. am I going to do yeah. with it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so if you actually It's more have, efficient just to give the money, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. 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 Hmm. And, and so we, we would see ourselves as people aren't feeling like they're being charitable by buying a coffee. They're I feeling see. like they're getting a good deal because it's, it's good coffee. You know? Yeah. Um, we put a lot of time and effort and energy into trying to do it at a, at a high standard. Yeah. No, oh, that's great. One of the words which has grown in prominence in the last year is social enterprise. Yeah. How do you think that fits in with what you're doing and, and do you use that label and, and is it becoming more important, do you think? Yeah, I, I absolutely think it's becoming more important. Uh, we would we would have called ourselves a social enterprise for a few years now, but we would have never led with that statement. So it's, hey, mm-hmm. I'm Nigel from Crave Cafe, it's a social enterprise. Um, but I would do that now. And so, mm-hmm. uh, th- and that's more been a... a so what's changed that's meant that? I mean, I, I yeah. think there's a lot that's changed, but I'm yeah. just curious from your perception, because you've been in it now for 10, 12 years or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm relatively new by comparison, but even in this time I've been involved in the last couple of years, I've seen yeah. a change, a shift in how the term is used and understood. So yeah, absolutely. what's your perspective? If on? I was to say what, what the biggest single change was, was the Social Enterprise World Forum that was here last September. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the build up to that, so it kind of, there was a, a bunch, you know, and then the, the media and a whole lot of things that sort of happened after that. You know, look, all the major papers, listeners, all of those things all had articles um, about Social Enterprise. And it just sort of put the name on the thing. Now, still, most people I come across, if I ask them, they don't really know what it is, but they, they're aware of it, you know, mm. and so it only needs a little explanation for people to go, yeah, totally, yeah, and, and they're all about it. So mm. uh, I, I think it is a growing and developing label that, that I think many businesses who are social enterprises don't even know it and and, and will sort of come around, you know, yeah, the, and within that, that that label in the next few years. Yeah. You know, I, was, I was talking to Peter Holt from um, Social Enterprise UK, and there's 40... Forty-seven billion dollars worth of stuff in the UK that of business that would identify as social enterprise. I think that is outrageous. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I don't know what the number is in New Zealand, but it's it's nowhere near that. Yeah, yeah, it will be fascinating to watch, won't it? Um, yeah. One of the things that I worry about or um, am concerned about is that people would start co-opting the name. You know, like you had yeah. the greenwashing term that, yep. that oh, this is an environmentally friendly product, but. Yep. Actually, it's not really, <laughs> you know, that it, but it's people use the term eco-friendly or green and, yep. and that we might get sort of social washing where people say this is a social enterprise, but yeah. not what's your take on that? How do you guard against that? Um, I, 
I'm generally an optimistic person would be how things are. So I would sort of look for how even that could be positive. So I think like, I think the companies that greenwash, um, it's better than just being overtly, I don't care about it, you know, and just being terrible for the environment. At least they're somewhere on that journey. So I think if companies sort of try and, and cash in on the social enterprise thing, at least it shows that it's it's something that's important and it's a journey that they're on and and that it might be the five years and there might be easy social shaming and other things that happen around that and if you care about that demographic then maybe the the business practice will force you to be charitable you know or, or good on the other side and i think that that's okay mm. yeah it, it's sort of like how cadbury you know you know started doing fair trade and, and a bunch of chocolate companies started doing fair trade stuff um, and they didn't do it because they wanted to they did it because they felt they, they had to and I think that's that's part of the, the way forward you mm. know that the customers will kind of force the big companies to, to be good yeah I well I agree completely be in the sense of I think it's a even a generational shift that's happening right now mm. that the next generations are coming through and saying actually the profit isn't the most important thing yeah i want to work for a company that has purpose yeah i want to understand what my job will actually contribute back to society yeah and it's not just about the company car um actually so it's it's actually quite fascinating isn't it when you think like yeah. the 1980s or even 90s sort of the the wolf of wall street how much money can i make and, and accumulate for as an individual Let's hope that this generation that's coming up, you know, below you and I, kind of yeah. embrace these concepts. Yeah, and that's the thing where they aren't into the institutions. So they're not going to support a, a good institution or charitable institution for that charitable sake, but they're in, into the cause and into the, the projects, you know. Mm. And so for us, uh, yeah, I think our staff enjoy working for us. So like I said, a very few of the staff are collective, you know, 45 of them aren't, and uh, but they, there is a sense of they know they're contributing to something bigger than themselves, and that's a cool thing to do. You know? yeah. But they've still got to work really hard and, and be efficient. You know? So like 80% of cafes uh, make no money, make a loss. Right. And, they, and they, they trade only because, say, there's a husband and wife who own it and they don't pay themselves very much and that, right. that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a terrible business to get into, <laughs> you know, to make money. And that's what, one of my big sort of points around it is uh, there's so little money in hospitality. Most people do it for these hospitable reasons because they or they love food or they love they love some aspect of what the, the cafe or restaurant is yeah and so i'm like man just do it as a social enterprise then 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 you're not trying to make money out of this thing Don't but you, like you're you just making the world better it. doing the thing that you love doing which is you know cooking or some food or, or, or the mm. other aspects that you've you've gotten into mm. so if we had a venn diagram you know and profits here I'm guessing that you'd be having community as a big part of that, you know, yeah. why you're doing it. Yeah. And then um, what are some of the other things that would be touch points for you? So, so for us on our social impact scale, we, we've got a little, uh, Akina Foundation have been really helpful just in the last few months as we've been, uh, there's another thing we'll talk about maybe as a new cafe that we're, we're doing in the neighborhood. And so in the, in the form of doing that, they've been helpful for, to us to understand uh, and measure our own social impact with what Crave's doing. Mm -hmm. And, and we've, We've got three um, sort of key uh, uh, maybe arms of social impact. So one of them is connection, which we've talked about quite a bit already. Um, the, the next thing um, sits around sort of um, uh, pride. So for us, for people to, to, to want to you know, live in Morningside, they've got to think it's a neighborhood worthy of living in. They've got to think this is a cool neighborhood to, to be part of for, for all these good reasons. Um, and so, so part of what we're doing is, you know, big, 
you know, public art murals and other th- other things that just sort of make people think this is a cool neighborhood to be part of. Yeah? Right. And so that, that's a big uh, part of, of our thing. Um, and and, and the, the cafe itself, like it needs to look beautiful. It needs to to be something that people go, oh man, I, I love Crave. Crave makes the neighborhood better. Yes. But then what we also do in the neighborhood makes it better. And so the whole totality thing is like, I love being a part of this. Because if you have pride in the neighborhood, you'll invest in it. Not not physically buy a house, but you'll, you'll emotionally invest in it. And if you emotionally invest in it, you know, you, you're a local and, and people kind of, and that investment will build to the sense of like real neighbor, neighborliness. Mm-hmm. Um, the third thing we have, we've sort of labeled empowerment, but basically what it means is that we're, we're trying to help the different subgroups in, in the neighborhood who might struggle to kind of, to get forward a bit. So we have a, uh, a generous hire kind of policy, um, which sometimes works at odds with making the profit part, right. you know. Uh, but so, yes, and so there are limits to that generous hire policy because we do have to not make a loss still. But so we we, um, we work with the, the, the drug court in Auckland as, as a sort of a, a trial process, which is amazing helping uh, people who have committed imprisonable crimes, but everyone sort of cons- is in consensus that their their addiction that they have is the source of their offending and so if we can deal with the addiction we'll deal with the offending and, and there's a, a a multi-year process that they go into um and so so we we work with a, a bunch of people through that system we, we uh, help some people with different disabilities um that, that it, it's hard for them to kind of get into the workforce maybe some people who have recently um been incarcerated and, and gotten out and you know you got a five-year gap in your cv it's pretty hard to get a first job so we we, we, that, that's another sort of part of, of what mm. a crave is to kind of help the, the fullness of the neighborhood to kind of yeah, move forward. Mm. But th- those are things that we, you can't talk too much about the specifics of that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's more in, in general. Yeah. But I get that, you know, there's many, there's many branches to the tree, right? Yeah. Like, cause, yeah. cause any one of those things that you've said, some charities would focus just on that. Yeah. But with the cafe, you're able to kind of offer a little bit, even yeah. if it's employment for this one or two or three people. Yeah. Um, that you're actually having some social impact through that as well. Yeah, and, and I think you, you'd sort of put before like what's important, and I, I went down the path of quality, but the, you know, like what environmental. Uh, so, so there is a onus on us as a as a do good cafe to do good for the environment as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not a it's not a driving motivation for why we exist, but that's maybe part of the, the new cafe that we're doing. But um, it, it is important. Like, man, it's funny. There's a the difficult thing between being something that is, that is charitable where people have an expectation that you're not going to charge high prices um, and, and we charge higher prices than, we charge what, what are normal cafe prices, but they're higher than what you'd normally associate with something that is mm. charitable with that kind of term on it, which is why we we don't like to use that term because mm. it engenders these other things. And um, so, But we yeah, we didn't use free-range bacon because it costs so much more. It's it's It's... 40 percent it's heaps more right. and and then this thing of like wow well, we need to keep our prices to a, a point um and the business has to work so we can't just do free range bacon and and not charge for it uh and we really wrestled around with some of these things you know mm. uh, because we didn't want to be this super expensive place and i i asked the question on social media and there was a huge backlash everyone just already assumed that we did free range bacon because we we're a do good cafe and i, and I was like so regardless, we had to do free range. Right. <laughs> that was a... Yeah, you asked the public yep, and the public media spoke. Fail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting. It, um, I'd love to talk about the new cafe and your plans for that, but just maybe picking up on that, you know, as something that didn't work the way you wanted. Yep. Is there anything over the years that has happened that you've learned from? You know, it, some yep. people would say that was a failure, but, oh, man, you know, yeah. like, is there a learning experience that, that you might think 
would be helpful for other people to hear. Yeah. Sometimes you only hear the good stuff nah. and, yep. and it's kind of like this veneer of, well, we've always been successful and, uh, you know, and it's almost impenetrable to get to that actually went through some hard times as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Can no, you sorry. share anything on so that? A, a couple of things. That One would be, uh, over the years, we've made not much money because it's really hard to make money. So I so say we've focused on not making a loss, but it's it's been hard in some years to not make a loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we've had to really um, learn a bit. You know. So I'm reasonably business, I'm entrepreneurial and, um, and, and try things. I've got a business degree. So there's some things that are set up that, you know, it, um, it should be okay. Uh, but it's still tough. So when we moved across the road to the new cafe, it was, so the lesson we learned was uh, success can be catastrophic. Um, uh-huh. And unpack that for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we had 65 seats and we were busy. We were like, you know, bursting at the seams. Uh, and so when we moved across, our expectation was that we would kind of, we, we, we had uh, yeah, almost tri- triple the number of seats. Um, and our expectation was that we, we didn't really have any marketing so much and things like that. So, so would, there'd be a little hump of growth and then it would sort of track forward as people found out about it and we, and we thought we'd do it well and stuff. Right. Yep. And we, we had 24 staff. So we moved across the road. We knew, we said to the staff, hey, look, there's going to be, it's, it's taken about a year to build this thing. Um, and there's a cool backstory for that. We don't have time to, but this awesome landlord who backed us big time. Um, and, and, we said, hey, look, it's going to be a bit of hard work for two or three weeks while all the people who have been interested in it sort of come in for the first time, check it out, and then it'll kind of settle back down to this sort of this groove and, and, we're, and we're, we'll kind of journey forward with growth. And so, yeah, sure enough, you know, first day happens and we're like, we're, we're jammed, jammed full. Um, and it, it's chaos. It, like, we, because we changed our systems, because we got so much bigger, we couldn't do counter service anymore. We'd always been a counter service cafe. We had to go to table service. And so all of our existing staff had to learn a whole new way. And then they're learning that new way in a new environment. And then with systems that were kind of being developed because it was new. And so everything was just chaotic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, and, and we journeyed for about a week. And we just realized we just needed a, a number of more staff. Like um, even with, yeah, we just we were failing, you know, um, failing big time, and that's a terrible, terrible thing. So we we hired and hired and hired, and over the period of the next six weeks, we hired thirty more staff. Yeah, you know? so we, <laughs> we went from twenty four to fifty five staff um, wow. in a six week block, and and we were still the whole time failing, uh, the whole time, you know, massive long waits for food, uh, you know, just it was just so difficult, um, and. And in that, so all those extra staff that you know, it blew our margins out, and and staff are a real huge part of your of your cost control for for a cafe for hospitality businesses. And so, over the first three months, um, so we opened you know at the end of September, beginning of October, uh, the first three months up to Christmas, we we sat down sat down did our, our numbers there because it's hard to look at every given week and, and work out. And I was like, we lost a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> in the first three months of opening. And we were epically busy. It just didn't stop being busy. You know, I we, see. So we grew, we doubled in size, and then just stayed more than double the whole time. You know? And so we were just scrambling to catch up. And, and essentially what happened was every new person that came in just cost us money. You know, it would have literally been cheaper for us to hand them money at the door and send them away. <laughs> um, but that's not what we, you know. And, 
And so, because we had to hire, so, you know, one, one brand new staff person coming to the contest could maybe look after four tables, whereas now one staff person could do 15, you know? And uh. so we had to have four staff to do the job of one, and that's an incredibly inefficient thing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, come into January, and, I, and it's like, we, we were doing well. Like, it's exciting and fun, but... Uh, Something needs to change as we well. We don't have a hundred thousand dollars to lose. That, right. that was what it was. You know, I was like, uh, yeah. So it was drastic change. And I, so, so I was, on the surface, it's very successful because you yeah. hired thirty more people, yeah. right? And, and, and everyone's like, and you must be super creamy. busy. You must be killing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, and you're just smiling and going, yeah. <laughs> we are making. Yeah, we, we're turning over heaps more. Sure. Man, our costs are just. Wow. Yeah, yeah, we we like we were ninety two thousand dollars over budget for staff in that wow. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not really sustainable, is no, it? No. Yeah. So what had to change? People learned more efficient ways of doing things, and therefore you were able to. Yeah, like it's it, it's so it's hard. Um, hospitality environments are not casual places where you just turn up to work and it's like yeah, chill, chill. Mm. Um, they they are places where you don't get paid very much. And there's quite a bit of pressure and stress. Um, it's, it's, it's a hard life. You know? <laughs> You're really selling it here. <laughs> yeah. Know, it's like, um, and it, it's so, so come January, we, we sat, I sat down with the full staff meeting and sort of just put it out there and said, look, this is where it's at. And so here's what's going to happen. We're going to cut all of our hours by 30%. Uh, yeah, so we, we're going from 1,100 staff hours a week to 800. Right. Um, and yeah, and so that's going to affect all of us. Okay. And, but the thing was, this is not punitive to anyone. It's like this, if we don't do this, none of us have a job. Right. So let's, yeah. yeah. And they all kind of got understood that. And we, we tracked forward um, and everyone just worked harder. But but we were three months in, so we'd sorted out systems. Cause we, you had the thing where a problem arises in the first four weeks and it takes three staff people 15 minutes to like work out the solution. Right. But once that's happened, the next time it's one person 30 seconds because you, you know the system. Yes. And so, but multiple problems or three people 15 minutes three people 15 minutes it's just so much time yeah to, so to work out yeah as well as you know a thing fails here or there or yeah, yeah. um so know, what did that do for the culture of the 50 people when they were faced with that hard time um so it was a make or break thing top you know and, mm. and i wasn't sure. so i think in that sense people got on board that they understood what it was and weren't grumpy about their personal circumstance they were kind of this is what it is that they've been part of it. they've seen it they're, they're, it's not strange news to them that the chaos but the the, the profit part was news because there was still an assumption that if we're this busy we must be making lots of money yeah um but li- yeah literally every extra person cost us and, yeah. and it was the weirdest thing so by opening up and being vulnerable and sharing that with yeah. them you were able to then have them join more even more which is what you were aiming for right yeah. the community and the team yeah. that people felt like actually were responsible for this as well yeah yeah absolutely and so so what what i mean the the reality is it made everyone's work life more difficult as well because they had to kind of do more with less time uh, and so probably a, about 10 of our staff um, were you know like starting uni and doing other things and and they and it just was a bit hard for them and so they they were like with no animosity no grumpiness it was like uh, you know I'm, I'm going to finish up in four weeks or six weeks or you know and um, and just get stuck into my studies that, that kind of thing. Um, and so it kind of just worked out without uh, and and so then 
so so once they left, then everyone else's hours kind of came up a bit in terms, of, you know, and it just sort of yeah. it just sort of worked so out. It worked out without in the everyone, end. He never said but it must have been quite stressful at the time, right? It You're looking tough. at the numbers. Like and I had a summer holiday that was not a good holiday. You yeah, know? right. And, and I and I came back thinking, because uh, because there what was what have we done? We've been the, yeah. we're, we've grown. We're successful. Every, yeah. Everything on the outside looks great, but actually yeah. the fit out is epic. You know, and the yeah. There was a, and, and there's a lot of people, a lot of stakeholders, not not the click, but just people who are, are vested in us doing well. Mm. And and there will be a sense that, man, if Crave can be of that size and that business and that thing and they can't do it, what what hope have I, you know, type yeah. thing. Yeah. And um and so so I I felt the weight of a, of a lot of pressure that's not just the immediate stuff that sure. kind of sits, sits around that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um and it, it was a not super pleasant no. context. Yeah. How did you cope with that pressure? Um uh, it's a difficult question. I, I'm I'm a reasonably uh, good pressure absorber as a, as a person, um, and I just sort of just pushed in. I think. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. That's good. But and now I just want to. Well, first I just wanted to say um, the shout out that you didn't give about the landlord who helped you out. Right. Um, do you want to do that? Because I think it's yeah. important to recognize people, even just a short one. Yeah. No, sweet. So there's a guy Jackie, and he um, he owns quite a bit of property in the neighborhood, and so he's he came over to us one day. He bought this this building across the road, and you know sometimes you're part of something, and there's things that are beyond your ability to dream of because it's so far outside of what you could do. And so he he basically said, "Hey, do you want to come and and move your cafe across to the, this building?" And it, it had been a forked off tire warehouse, so it was a manky, terrible, grease ridden big building right. um, that would require quite a lot of work. And we were like, "Man!" And, but that so. Within hospitality, there are, there are like seven factors that kind of make uh, of, your, of your location that, that make it good, and location is the most critical thing. And mm-hmm. I remember watching a thing, you know, watching it, and all the all the good, you know, the cool cats, the hip group, and that were t- talking about what they what do you need for these seven. And yeah. I, I looked at the list and going, we meet none of that list. Right. Like we need zero <laughs> on that list of seven good factors. Mm-hmm. You know, we're south side, we're you know, no sun, we get no no foot traffic. It's just no car parking, no no. All of the things are bad. And you look across the road, and this thing was like bathed in sunlight, had car park they yeah, yeah. just it fit, fit about five of the criteria and we're like man that would be so cool um but we just we'd built the, the first two iterations and it, it's quite a, it's quite hard work um and we knew this thing was so big and so difficult that it would kill us to actually do it and so we we said no but but the landlord said hey look what if i you know you design it and i'll, I'll build yeah. it to you so they met, met you halfway or, well, or more said, than halfway well, he just said, like, oh, <laughs> yeah and uh, and I'll, I'll pay for your kitchen equipment yeah and I, and, I, and, he, and he said and i'll tag your rent uh, to your turnover so that if you don't do well i don't do well yeah right. so it was a that's great thing. so it's a real active um belief in the yeah. in the in the possibility wasn't yeah. it so he, he's he's just a dude he, he said basically look i I'm invested in this neighborhood and you guys are invested in the neighborhood yeah. and I've seen you give so much to the neighborhood. He says, I want to give a bit back. And That's so cool. I'd like to do this. Yeah. And, and so I, that, and that was originally what your vision was, wasn't it? That you yeah. get people wanting yeah. to build the community even more. Yeah. Um, can we just briefly talk about the plans for the future? Yep. Um, just say whatever you want in terms of where you're going and the next, yeah. the next steps. So the next step is uh, there is a, a hospitality hub being built next door to where Crave is, mm-hmm. and and it's the guys that um, are behind the Britomart project and uh, City Works and that kind of stuff in Auckland. Um, they whatever they touch, it turns to gold. They they know how to do stuff well, and they have kind of come and said, hey, because of what Crave is there, it's sort of set the, the scene for 
for a, a new core hub to, to happen in the neighborhood. And so that, and in the projects they work in, again, all the real awesome cafe operators uh, are there. And so, so they've kind of got good connections with all of them. Mm-hmm. And, and, but they say, hey, look, there's a cafe going in as part of this hub. Um, would, because you guys are the neighborhood and you know what's going on, do you want to do that thing? And so right. it was a real, um, and, and the way the, so was a real validation is, of, yeah. of the 10 years of work. Huh? Yeah. Where, where the cafe yeah. is and nothing, it's a, it's the prime, prime spot. Yeah. And so if we don't do a good job, the whole thing looks shoddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's a massive you know, tick of like, we, we believe in you guys. Yeah. Um, That's great. and, and so, and, and this thing is going to be really important to the neighborhood. And what we know is that if you're on the inside of something, it's way easier to inform and influence that than being on the outside. So uh, it wasn't our plan to build a cafe next to our cafe, but that's what we're going to do. Right. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you need a challenge there. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so this thing's going to be a social enterprise in a, in a more pure sense, I think, even than, than what Crave is, and that we're going we're gonna to sell some equity in it at the start to, to fund the... Um, the, the fit out and we're going to return a profit back to those investors um, but still more than 50% of the profit will go back into the neighborhood but it'll definitely so people will invest for a social reason and um, and, and that particularly for this new cafe is going to make the neighborhood a, a greener and a healthier place to live so we've got a, a number of sort of social impact measurements that we're um, crafted out to like how to make Morningside a greener and healthier place we yeah. think it's going to be awesome that is great and after this I think we're going to sit down and look at the um, sort of the offer document yeah. And, yeah. and run through just from, a, just from a legal point of view to, yeah. to check which I think is it's so exciting for me because I'm based here in Christchurch and yet I can have some impact you know yeah. up in Auckland like as a lawyer it's it's an amazing thing that that some of those skills could go out and and help people doing great things in other communities. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, if people want to connect with you, um, what's the best way to do that? Is there a website, you know, that type of thing? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so cravecafe.co.nz is the website. Um, yeah. And there's a Facebook page. I think Cafe Crave is the, um, the Facebook thing with that. And yeah, and, and so jump on. Uh, there's some links to, to, you know, to contact us. Um, yeah. But but come on and have a coffee, you know, and, and get a feel for the vibe and um, understand what awesome neighborhoods look like. Yeah, that's great. And you're here in Christchurch. You're going to be meeting with some, like, Addington Coffee Co-op yeah. people. And is there? do you think there's something developing across the country in terms of different yeah. people interested in these ideas? I think so. And I think we're on the sort of the starting cusp of that would be so Addington's been going for a while. They they got going about a year before us, and they were really generous in terms of their their IP and and just help in terms of going. And, and so the, yeah, yeah, they were sort of like a big sister cafe to us uh, for yeah. for a number of years. That's great. Regard. Yeah. So so I'll go and connect with yeah, you know, Age who's running that now, and yeah, good. Oh, that's really awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Nigel. I cool. really appreciate your time and. Um, yeah, I'm going to be in Auckland next Friday, so I'm hoping to come by and have a coffee awesome. and see the place. Yeah. Um, but it's just fascinating to trace your own history as well, even back to Solomon Islands, you know, yeah. like that some of those things that you noticed there in terms of hospitality and, and the way that people treated others, yeah. it feels to me like there's echoes of that childhood in what you're doing now, which yeah. is, I love to trace those stories, you know, and, and, yeah, it's and, cool. and also the journey, you kind of lifted the veil on, it's not all you know, it, it may look successful, but actually there's some things going on you have to work through. So yeah. thank you for being so honest and sharing with it. Um, right. I think it will really help people. Thanks, Stephen. It's good to be here. Cheers. Well, I hope you learned something from that interview with Nigel. I know for me, the thing that stuck out was that from the surface or from the outside, it may have looked like everything was going according to plan, but actually success was resulting in problems that they hadn't anticipated. 
Now, next week's episode, we're going to be chatting with Chris Simcock, who's the founder of Impact Ventures New Zealand and has been involved in the raising of $8 million for an impact investment fund. And we have a really fascinating conversation. And here's an excerpt from it. And that that was a bit of an eye-opener for me and um, uh, just a a disconnect in the capital markets where where money is just flowing into these opportunities purely for a financial gain um, without regarding... Uh, what the the implications were for the broader stakeholders, um, what's happening to the environment, employment, uh, society, and all these big issues which just getting kind of left whilst uh, all these businesses that are harming things uh, are getting funded. And that, to me, was um, just didn't sit right with me, I guess. Yeah. Well, I hope you can join me for that and some other upcoming episodes. I'd appreciate it if you can take a few seconds to leave a rating or review of the show so that other people can find it, and hit subscribe so that you'll get automatic updates. The last thing is that there's now more than 150 people who've liked the Facebook page, which is great because I'm putting up pictures and videos there. So if you want to check that out, search Seeds Podcast on Facebook. Until next time. (music) 